Morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Nice. Good to see you all. Thank you all so much for being here, for hanging out with us. Whether you're joining us right here on our campus or if you're watching online, I just want to thank you so much for being here, taking time out of this busy weekend to hang with us. This week, we're continuing our series called Should Happens, and it's based on this book by the same title. And this is a, this is a great book. This book is written by Todd Clark, who some of you know Todd because he lives here and he goes here. Todd is a, a church planner, a leader, works with churches all over the country, but uh, him and his wife, they live here in, in Huntington Beach, and if you were here a couple weeks ago, he actually kicked off this series. And so everything we're going through is based on stuff that he's kind of written about in this book. And so if you haven't got this book yet, you can get it. We actually have it for sale here on our campus, in the middle of our campus when we're done here. It's $10, which that's actually cheaper than it is on Amazon. And it's not very many things you can find cheaper than you can on Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon, but it's a little more expensive there. So it's 10 bucks. If you haven't gotten it, I really encourage you to get a copy. And the cool thing about it is a lot of the proceeds from this book go toward an organization called Children's Hunger Fund. And so every book you buy goes toward feeding a hungry child. So it's a good book. It's a good cause. Really, really encourage you to, to pick it up because it's, it's great stuff. What we're doing in the series, because what, what Todd does in, in the book, is we're talking about all of the shoulds that we experience in our life. And, and here's, here's what we mean by that. Here's the definition of that. The shoulds are expectations that we place on ourselves, on others, and on God. You and I, in every day in our life, we have these, these expectations. Some are put on us, some we put on, on other people. Every day you and I do this, this thing to ourselves where we tell ourselves, well, I should do this, or I should do that, or I should be better at this, or I should be a nicer person, I should exercise, I should eat more. Our life is full of all these shoulds that we give to ourselves, but we also give them to other people. You should do this, and you should do that, and other people give them back to us, right? We all feel this pressure sometimes of who we should be or what we should do. And sometimes we even put that on God. It's, well, God should do this or God should do that. And all of these shoulds, the ones that we put on ourselves, ones that we put on others, ones that other people put on us, they become these burdens that just weigh us down and they tire us out and they exhaust us and they destroy relationships. And so really what we're doing in this series is talking about how do we free ourselves from all of these expectations? How do we free ourselves from all of these, these shoulds? God came so that we could live, God came to this earth in the person of Jesus so that we could live a full life. That's what Jesus said at one point. I've come so you could live life to the fullest. So we want to talk about, so how do we get rid of these shoulds so that we can live the good full life that, that God has for us? And so what we're going to talk about this week is we're going to talk about the shoulds that other people place on us, the expectations that we feel from other people around us. My first job that I had when I was in high school was I worked at Blockbuster Video back in the day. There you go. It's bringing it back a little bit right there, right? That was, that was my first job. I only actually worked there for like three months because my home church hired me on to be a part of their staff. Right out of high school, I went to college where I was studying to get a bachelor's degree in church ministry, and my church knew that, and so they were really cool, and they were really gracious, and they said, well, while you're studying, why don't you also get some experience? And so, like, at the same time I started college, like in, in August, I started working at my church, and it was a great experience. I worked at my church all the way through college, and then when I graduated from college and got ordained and officially became a pastor, they hired me on, and I was the, the youth pastor. But during those four years of college when I worked there, it, it was incredible. I loved it, I, and I did everything. Like I did a little bit of stuff in children's ministry. I did a little bit of stuff in youth ministry. Sometimes I would just do projects that they asked me to do. Sometimes I did research for the, the lead pastor. I did all kinds of stuff. And during the four years when I was in college, even though I wasn't like officially a pastor, I still had a lot of ministerial duties. Like I would still teach sometimes or I would still, you know, lead people or do things occasionally. And so I still felt some of the pressure of this is what it means to work at a church and this is what you should do as a, as a church employee. I remember one night when I was in college, 
my sister and I were hanging out. It was just the two of us. My sister is three years older than me. And it was two of us, and we were going to kind of go out and get some food and come home and watch a movie and just chill. And so my sister said, hey, why don't we get some pear cider? I'd really like to get some pear cider. And if you don't know, pear cider is alcohol. It's what it is. And we were both over 21. I was over 21, and she's three years older than me. So there was nothing, like, morally wrong with it. There was nothing legally wrong with it. It wasn't a problem. But even at that time, I still internally felt this pressure, like, I probably should not do this because I work at a church. And I remember trying to rationalize it through my mind. And on the one hand, I'm like, there's nothing wrong with it. But on the other hand, I understand that when you talk about something like alcohol, you know, it, it, it has been very destructive in a lot of people's lives. And so, you know, you kind of walk a, a tightrope there. So I remember looking at my sister, and I kid you not, this is what I said to her. I said, okay, we can go get pear cider, just not here. We have to drive like three towns over, and then we can get it. And she looked at me like I was joking. She goes, are, are you serious? I said, oh, absolutely. She goes, why? I said, listen, sis, I, I work at a church. Like, people expect certain things from me, and I can't go into a store in this town and buy alcohol because if someone sees me, that's just not a good look for me or the church or for God. So we lived in Downey at the time. So I'm like, so let's just go to Whittier, and uh, we'll find, like, a, a Ralph's or an Albertson's, and we can go in the back, and we can buy them, and everything will be fine. And no joke, that's what we did. Because I was driving. We drove a couple towns over into Whittier and we found the first grocery store and went in the back and bought pear cider and, and, and brought it home and had a fun night and hung out and watched, you know, movies and ate. And, and I look back on that event and I think, man, how, like, how dumb was I? <laughs> like, the reality is, if it's wrong, like, it's wrong in Downey or Whittier. It doesn't really matter, you know, like, it's so. But at the same time, like, I look at that and I think, well, yeah, but th there was nothing wrong with that. There was nothing morally wrong. There was nothing ethically wrong. There was nothing legally wrong. But still, at that time in my life, I felt this expectation of what I should or should not do. And I really had this pressure of, well, if I'm going to work at a church, this is something that I should not do because other people will look down on me or I'll disappoint other people. I'll let other people down or... And so I had all the, even though I wasn't officially a pastor, even though I, was, I still had all these expectations that I carried of what I thought other people felt like I should or should not be doing. And really, those expectations came from somewhere. I didn't just invent them. At some way, at some point in my journey, it had been communicated to me, or at least I thought it had been communicated to me, that this is the expectation of what it means to, to work at a church. And I share that story with you because I guarantee you at some point in your life, you felt the same way. At some point in your life, you have felt the pressure of someone else's expectations of this is what you should do. As a member of this family, this is what you should do. As a member of this organization, here's what you should do and here's what you should not do. See, all of us at points in our life have felt the expectations of someone else's shoulds for us. For some of us, maybe it was, maybe it was our parents. Maybe our parents had these huge expectations of what our life should be like. Even if it wasn't the life that we wanted, they had it all planned out for us. And we've carried those expectations and those shoulds with us. For some of us, maybe it was our, our friends. We had a really close friend, maybe a coworker, that had all of these shoulds of this is what you should do, this is who you should be. For others of us, maybe it's a relationship word. Maybe it's our marriage or, or maybe we're, we're, we're dating someone and, and we just feel all this pressure of this is what we should do and, and this is what we should be. And what happens is we end up carrying all of these shoulds around like in a backpack and they just, we keep piling everyone else's in there. Well, you think I should do this and you think I should be that and you think I should do this and we carry them around and then they just weigh us down and they beat us down and they exhaust us. Now the reality is you're never gonna be able to get rid of other people's shoulds. You won't. Other people are always gonna have expectations of you. There's nothing you can do to get rid of that. 
But other people's expectations aren't really the problem. The real problem is that we feel like we need to say yes to them. That when someone else has this expectation of this is what you should do, this is what you should be, we feel like we need to say yes. Like I should be who you want me to be and I should do, do all of this. That's the real problem. And if you're anything like me, sometimes it's really, really hard to say no to people, especially people that are close to you. Like when, you're, when your parents who love you, when they have shoulds for you, and they have expectations, it's hard to say no. When it's your spouse, when it's someone that you're dating, when it's a friend, it's really, really hard to say no because we feel like, well, if I'm saying no to this person, then I'm letting them down. I'm failing them. Because the truth is, most people's shoulds for us, most people's expectations for us, actually come from a really good place. I mean, if, if you feel all this heavy pressure that like, came from your parents, more often than not, those, those expectations actually come from a really good place. Your parents want what's best for you. They want you to have a good life. They just think this is what you should do in order to get it. Same thing is true from friends. Same thing is true from, for, for spouses or, or, or for you know, close relationships that we have. Most of the shoulds we receive from other people are actually not from a bad place. They're from a really good place. And this is why we have such a hard time saying no to them. Because we feel like, man, if I say no, then I'm letting you down and I'm failing you and that's gonna damage our, our relationship. That's gonna damage our friendship and I, I don't wanna do any of that. Really, I have one goal for you today. That when we're done here in a little bit and you go back to what is your everyday life, I have one goal. And my goal is simply this, that you would feel more comfortable saying no. That's it. When we're done here, I want you to feel more comfortable saying no to the shoulds and the expectations of other people. And the reason I want you to feel more comfortable saying no is because Jesus said no. A lot of times, if you're anything like me, sometimes I feel like, well, I can't say no because I'll be a bad Christian. But the reality is that the New Testament begins with four books called Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different accounts of the life of Jesus. If you look through those Gospels, you will find story after story where Jesus says no to the shoulds and the expectations of other people. And so what I'm gonna do real quick is I wanna walk us through just some stories, just so you can see in the life of Jesus times that he says no. And I want us to see why he says no to people because why he says no is, is really important. So the first story we're gonna look at actually comes from the book of Mark. And in this story, Jesus and his, his best friends, this group of people called the 12 or the apostles, they are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Passover was the biggest holiday festival in, in, in the Jewish world and, and people would always go to Jerusalem to celebrate it. So Jesus and his best friends, the, the 12, they're on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and two of his best friends, these two guys who are brothers, they actually come up to Jesus. And Mark says, here's, here's what happens. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. So these two brothers are obviously having a side conversation. And they have this conversation, they work it out, they say, okay, we need to go to Jesus now. So they go up to Jesus, just the two of them and Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask you, which is a really bold thing. Like, I'm not even gonna tell you what I want, I just want you to say yes before you even know what it is. That's like a super bold thing. But I think the truth is, sometimes doesn't it feel that way when someone asks you something? Especially when it's someone close to you, hey, will you do this for me? You feel like you don't have much of a choice. Because if I say no, then we're not gonna be friends or our relationship's gonna end. See, sometimes that's the amount of pressure we feel. This is the pressure that these guys put on Jesus. Hey, Jesus, we're buddies, we're friends. We want you to do for us whatever it is we want. Jesus is smart enough to not go along with that. Jesus says, I'm not gonna say yes to that. You tell me what you want first, and then I'll tell you whether or not I can do it. <laughs> Jesus isn't just gonna like give them an, an open-ended, sure. He says, no, be more specific. 
And so they tell him. Here's what they tell him. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Now Jesus' friends and his followers believed that he came to the earth to reestablish the kingdom of Israel, the geographic and political kingdom of Israel. The first part of the Bible called the Old Testament is essentially the story of Israel. And Israel, you know, out of, they start off as a group of slaves and they become this free independent nation. They become a kingdom, but then the kingdom is, is conquered and it's destroyed. And so what people are hoping for is they want that kingdom reestablished. And so in the first century world that Jesus lives in, people are looking forward to the Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed one. The, the Greek word for that is Christ. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek. But whenever you see that word Messiah or Christ, they mean the same thing. And it's this person that God was gonna send to reestablish the kingdom. And so Jesus' friends here, the 12, they believe that he's the Messiah. They believe that he is going to establish the kingdom of Israel. And so what that meant is that he was gonna overthrow Rome because first century Israel is controlled by Rome. He's gonna overthrow Rome. He's gonna make the people of Israel independent. He's gonna lead this army. He's gonna reestablish the kingdom and he's going to reign over it. And so the question to Jesus is, hey, when this happens, can we sit in the seats of power and authority next to you? So essentially what they're doing is they're trying to leverage their relationship with Jesus for their own benefit. Anybody ever do that to you? You know when people do that all the time? When you have a vacation house, season tickets, or a truck. That's when people try to leverage a relationship. They're like, hey, I'm moving this weekend and you have a truck. Why don't you come help me out? You know, people do, we do that all the time. We try to leverage our relationship with someone else in order to get something from them that we want. That's what these brothers are doing, which is just a lowball move. I mean, to put a friend of yours, someone you care about in that kind of situation, it's just kind of a dirtbag move. But listen to how Jesus responds. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, oh yeah, you'll, you'll drink the cup and you'll be baptized with the baptism. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And Jesus' response here is, is so brilliant because the first thing Jesus says is he kind of lets him know in a very subtle way, very subtle way, Jesus lets him know, yeah, you know what? I'm actually not here to do what it is you think I'm here to do. Yeah, I came to establish a kingdom but it's not a kingdom in the way that you think of a kingdom. It's not a political, geographical kingdom. See, what Jesus talked about more than anything is he talked about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is where God reigns. And that's not limited to one geographic political area. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God here on earth, and he invited everyone to live in that reality because here's the thing, when you live your life with God as king, that changes everything. And this is what Jesus was inviting people to. This whole new reality, this whole new way to live, this whole new way to be human, this whole new life. And Jesus, what he's kind of letting them know here in very subtle ways, he's saying, listen, the kingdom of God is not about, it's not about war and power and, and overthrowing Rome. That's not the way this is going to go down. In fact, Jesus is saying, the way that I'm going to inaugurate this kingdom is I'm going to give my life for it. I'm going to die for it. And then even more subtly, he lets them know, he says, and hey, just so you know, <laughs> you're going to die for it too. That's what being a part of this movement is going to cost you. You don't know it yet, but that's what it's going to cost you. But then he says, to go back to your question, can you sit on my right and left? No. No. I mean, he straight out looks at him and just says, no. You can't. That these, are, these are some of Jesus' best friends. 
These are people who he knows, who he loves. They love him. They ask him this question straight out, and Jesus looks at them and says, no. No, I'm not going to be who you want me to be. I'm not going to do what you want me to do just because you want me to do it. It's okay for us to say no to our friends sometimes because Jesus says no to his friends and the shoulds that they place on him. And the next story comes in John chapter 6. And in John 6, Jesus has just performed this incredible miracle. He's fed thousands of people with one small sack lunch. And everyone saw this, and everyone's amazed, and everyone's in awe. And John says, here's the response of the crowd. Here's what the crowd wants to do. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force. So what you have to understand is it's not just Jesus' best friends that think he's the Messiah. There's a whole bunch of other people that think he's the Messiah. There's a whole bunch of other people that want him to establish the geographical political kingdom of Israel. And so when this crowd of people, this crowd of thousands of people, watches him perform this miracle, their response is, this is the guy. He's the one. He's the prophet. He's the Messiah. So let's just cut through all this other stuff and let's just crown him king now. Now that is a huge, huge thing in the world that they live in. Because remember, this is first century Israel, which is ultimately under the control of Rome. And so in first century Israel, at the end of the day, Rome was in charge and Caesar was in charge. And so if you lived in a Roman-controlled territory and you crowned someone king and said, we're an independent kingdom and this is our king, there's a word for that and the word is treason. Rome would not have taken this very well. I mean, Rome would have, would have marched in and, and, and just taken care of this. Like, because you, you just don't do this. This really is a declaration of independence type moment. This is what this crowd is saying, that we're done with Rome. This is the guy, we're so convinced this is the guy that right here and right now, we're gonna make him king and we're gonna declare our independence from Rome. This is just inviting war and conflict. But in this moment, this crowd of thousands of people is going to make Jesus their king. They're gonna give him all the power, they're gonna give him all the authority, they're gonna do whatever he says. And here's how he responds. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He left. We're gonna make you king. Now I'm good, peace, <laughs> I'm out. He walks away from being king. He turned it down. I remember when I was in junior high, they taught us about peer pressure. You know, peer pressure is the pressure that you feel from all your different peers. And, and when I first learned about peer pressure in junior high, it was in the context of like drugs and alcohol. You know, like if your friends tell you do this, do this, you say no, 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 no. But what I've learned is that peer pressure isn't just something you feel when you're like in junior high, that I'm 40 and it's still real in my life. That there's always this pressure we feel from the people around us. You know, how do you, how do you keep up with the Joneses? How do you get all the stuff they have? And, and, and when people want something from us, we, we feel that pressure. I cannot imagine the amount of peer pressure Jesus feels in this moment. There's literally thousands and thousands of people that want him to be this military powerful king. That's what they're wanting. That's what they're expecting. That's, that's their should for him in that moment. Jesus looks at this crowd of thousands of people and he says, no. I won't be who you think I should be. I know this is what you want, but this is not why I'm here. So no, and he leaves. The last story we're gonna look at, I think at least for me, is the most powerful of these stories. Because it's like every time I read this story, it, it literally just blows my mind. It's mind-blowing to me. And this story is at the beginning of the book of Mark. 
And in the beginning of the book of Mark, Jesus has just started traveling around. He's just started teaching. He's just starting to build this movement that will ultimately become known as the church. And they're just starting to gain momentum. And really the big reason this movement's gaining momentum is because Jesus is healing people. and He's performing miracles. He's doing all these incredible things. And Mark says that all these people are, are, are bringing their, their friends to Jesus who need to be healed, who are, who are possessed by demons. Here's how Mark describes it. Mark says, that evening after the sunset, people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So Jesus is in this home, and people are just bringing people who are sick, who are demon-possessed, and Jesus is, is healing them, and he's curing them. These are people that have real, legitimate needs. And through Jesus, they're experiencing healing and grace and forgiveness and transformation. To me, the most powerful experiences, the most fulfilling experiences, are when, you're, when I'm able to help someone else. Like when you're, when you're willing to serve someone else and the result of that serving is, man, you see like transformation in this person's life. That's the most fulfilling experiences, at least in my life. But it also can become very tiring. Because when you're helping someone else, when you're serving someone else, you're pouring out a lot of who you are. And it becomes very exhausting. So Jesus is helping all these people. He's giving to all these people. And here's what you have to remember about Jesus. That he is God. Okay, Paul talks about that in a letter he writes called Philippians, that in his nature, that's who he is, that God comes to earth in the person of Jesus. And Jesus claims that over and over, and ultimately he proves it through his death and resurrection. But he's also a human being. And he's not like 50-50, he's 100% of both. And so he's a human being just like you and I. And so all of this serving, all of this giving, it, it tires him out, it wears him out, he, he gets exhausted. And so here's what he does next. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. So Jesus gets up, and he goes off, and he spends time in prayer, just him and God, because Jesus needs this in order to recharge, because he has been just pouring and pouring and pouring and giving and giving and giving, and he's exhausted. And he's tired and he's worn out. And he recognizes that he needs to have some time for just him and God. And this isn't something Jesus just does here. It's like a regular rhythm and pattern throughout his life. He constantly does this. And so he goes off to kind of recharge and to re-energize and to get refocused. But people are still looking for him. Wait a minute. <laughs> There's more people to heal. There's more people with needs. And so some of his friends come after him and they say, hey, what are you doing? You can't be here. You got to come back. Everyone's at the house. There's more people that need to be healed. There's more sick people. There's more demon-possessed people. You got to come back. You got to heal these people. You got to keep this thing going. Let's go. And I want to read you Jesus' response because Jesus' response is a part of this story that is just absolutely mind-blowing to me. Here's what Jesus says. Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. He looks at me and says, yeah, Simon, I'm not going back. I know there's a bunch of sick people in that house. I know there's a bunch of people that have legitimate needs. And I know I could do something about it, but I'm not, I'm not gonna go back there. Every time I read that, I'm like, holy cow. Because in my life, I feel like, man, if someone asks me to do something good, I can't say no to that. See, this, this is the problem. This is one of the reasons it's so, so difficult to say no. That if someone were to come up to me after church and say, hey, Scott, do you want to go rob a bank today? Be really easy to say, no, I'm good. 
No, that's just, that's, because it's not a good choice. It's a bad choice. But most of the things people want from us, most of the things people expect from us, most of the shoulds that people have for us, they're good things. When I think about the things in my life that I get asked to do, hey, will you serve here? Will you give here? Will you volunteer here? Will you coach here? They're all good things. And I feel like if I say no to, well, if I say no to this, does that mean I hate kids? Or if I say no to this, does that mean, like, there's just all of that pressure because these are all good things. What Jesus is being asked to do here is a really good thing. He says, no. And notice his reason. This is why I've come. I have to go on and do something else because this something else I have to do, this is really why I came. And so Jesus says no to this really good thing. And I think the reason that Jesus is so comfortable saying no and not feeling like a jerk, I think the reason he's so comfortable saying no and not having so much guilt is because Jesus understands something that we don't. And here's what he understands. Care and compassion are limited resources. They are. Like we think of, we think of money and energy and, and time. These are limited resources. And so how we use them, we have to use them in the most effective, efficient ways. But the same thing is true of our care and compassion. There's only so much of it that we have. And so if we give all our care over here, we're not going to have any left to give over here. We have to be very careful where we allow our care and compassion to go to. I, I'm a sports fan. I've always been a sports fan my whole life. I grew up playing sports, watching sports. I love sports. But what I, what I realized really early on in my marriage, hopefully, th- thankfully, was that I put so much energy and effort into my sports teams that it actually affected other areas of my life. Because when Lynn and I first got married, man, my, my mood was determined by how my particular team was doing. Like if my team was doing good and they were winning, then everything was great. But if my team was losing, then it was like, man, I was bummed out and I was super depressed. When I was a kid, little kid, I became a USC fan, which I know some of you will boo me for, but that's okay. Um, So I grew up a USC fan. And then when uh, Linda was in college, Linda went to USC. So the whole time we were dating, we would go to like USC games and we'd watch USC and root for USC. And when Linda was in school at USC, that was like the heyday of USC under Pete Carroll when they were just winning all kinds of games and they were winning national championships and, and Rose Bowls and all that stuff. And so during that time, man, I just went to some incredible games. I went to a couple Rose Bowls. Uh, one of the Rose Bowls was where they beat Michigan for a share of the national title. That was a lot of fun. Went to a Rose Bowl where uh, they beat Penn State. Uh, I remember one of the coolest games I ever went to was Linda and I went to um, Carson Palmer's senior year. They played against Notre Dame. And it was at the end of the season and both the schools were doing really well. Uh, and, and it was like 10 to 10 at halftime. And then SC just came out and just crushed them. I think it was like 42 to 10 at the end of the game. But it was a night game in the Coliseum. It was all lit up. It was packed. It was just, I have so many good memories of games during that, that season. But there's one game that haunts me. And it's the stupid national championship game where they lost to Texas. They played in the Rose Bowl. And what kills me about that game is universally, universally, it's still considered one of the greatest college football games of all time. And really, if you look at it, it was a great game. It was two great teams. It was back and forth. Came down, like, it was a great game. But USC lost. They lost at the very end. Vince Young ran for a touchdown. And I remember when that game was over, I was like crushed. And Lynn and I were watching it with our friends, Mike and Danielle, and all of us were crushed because we were all SC fans. I remember after the game, we went to Baskin Robbins like to drown our sorrows in ice cream. And we just didn't say anything to each other. We literally just said that. We were super depressed. I went to bed that night super depressed. I woke up the next morning and I was depressed. And then like, I noticed like as the days went on, like I was still depressed and I was still depressed. I was still depressed. And finally I just got to the place where I'm like, oh my gosh. Like literally this game, which is what it is, it's a game, 
has like affected every area of my life. And I realized that, that like when I would go to work, because at the time I was a youth pastor here at the church, I would come into work and I was like all depressed. What's up everybody? Glad you're here. Yeah, God, you know, do whatever I have to do. And I was like depressed. And then I'd come home from work to my wife. We didn't have children at the time, but I'd come home to work. Hey babe, how you doing? It's good to see you. Hope everything's going well. And so what I realized is that like literally all my emotion, all my energy, all my care had gone into this game and so I didn't have any left over to give to the people around me or to give to my wife. And I just remember coming to the point where I'm like, this is wrong. Like, this is wrong. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be that kind of coworker, friend. I don't want to be that kind of, I don't want to be that kind of husband. And so I literally at that point made a decision to kind of like back away from sports a little bit. I was like, I can't give all my energy there because I need energy. I need care and compassion to give to my wife and now to give to my children and to give to my friends and family and, and the people around me. And so I still like sports. I do. I still watch them from time to time. And, and if my team wins, I get happy. And if, if my team loses, I get sad. And if one of my teams gets robbed out of two World Series because other teams cheat, like it makes me angry. <laughs> like I'm not going to lie. It makes me angry. Um, <laughs> there you go. But I've had to learn that like, you know what? I only have so much care and compassion. There's only so much energy I put out. And so I want to give it to the places that really matter. I want to give it to my spouse. I want to give it to my kids. I want to give it to, to my faith. I want to give it to the people around me. See, this is what Jesus understands. If you keep giving away to everybody, then you won't have any left to give where it really matters. To your family, to your faith, to all those things that are the most important. There's a real thing. You, you can Google this. There's a real thing called compassion fatigue. And here's what compassion fatigue is. It's the emotional stress or apathy resulting from the constant demands of caring for the people. If you keep saying yes to all of these things that people want you to do, even if they're good things, if you keep saying yes to all of these shoulds that people put in your life, you'll end up bitter and you'll end up burned out. If you try to care about everything, pretty soon you're not going to care about anything. This is why time and time again, Jesus says no. He says no to the shoulds of other people, even if they're good. Even if they're good, Jesus says no, because here's what Jesus knew. Here's what he knew. If Jesus tried to become who other people thought he should be, then he never would have done what he came here to do. See, everybody in the first century world had an understanding of what it meant to be the Messiah. And this is what the Messiah should do. And this is the expectations we place on the Messiah. And no one's expectation of the Messiah included death. No one believed the Messiah was going to die or should die. That's why when Jesus actually dies and he's buried, everyone thinks it's over. Everyone thinks the movement is done. Even though you can go back in the Gospels and read, Jesus will tell them point blank, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. And they're like, no, 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 you're the Messiah. You're not supposed to do that. And that's why when he dies, everyone's like, well, it's, it's over. He was not supposed to do that, but he did, and so now it's over. When Jesus dies, no one expects him to come back to life. Then he does. See, in the first century Roman world, it was all about power and force. But what Jesus did was all about sacrificial love. And that was the means by which he was making not just Israel right, but all of creation right. He was restoring God as king over all creation and establishing God's reign, not just in Jerusalem, but all over the world. But had he done what everybody wanted him to, to, to do, he never would have done what he came here to do. 
Had he given in to all the expectations and all the shoulds of what everyone around him wanted, he never would have done what he came here to do. See, this is really important. Jesus didn't say no just to be a jerk. It wasn't like he was a jerk. like, I'm not doing that. That's a waste of my time. No, and, and this is really important too. Jesus didn't say no because like, oh no, I've already met my quota of good deeds for the day. I just have to do three good things and I've already done them, so you're the fourth person to ask me, so no. No, that's not why he said no. Jesus said no to other people so that he could say yes to God. Jesus said no to the shoulds of other people so that he could focus on what it is that God was leading him to do. The first pastor I ever worked for, the lead pastor I ever worked for, his name was Gordon Venturella, and I love Gordon. Gordon, he was at my home church. He was a sharp dude, and, and I had a lot of great memories with Gordon. But one of the things I remember about him is at the end of every staff meeting, we would close in prayer, and we'd go around and everybody would pray, but he would always be the last one to pray. And I feel like he said this at every single staff meeting. He may not have, but he said it a lot. But I feel, again, he said it so much that I felt like it was at every staff meeting. And this is how he would close every prayer. He would say, God, help us to say no to the good things so that we can say yes to the best things. See, other people's expectations in your life, other people's shoulds in your life, they might be really good things. But that doesn't mean that they're the best thing. Here's really what I want you to take away. If you keep saying yes to everyone else's shoulds, then you'll be saying no to who God created you to be. See, here's what I want us all to understand, that every single one of us, you are a child of God made in the image of God. And God is leading you somewhere. He's leading you to the full life he created you to live. You are not defined by other people's expectations. You're not. So don't let other people's expectations define you. Be defined by who you were created to be and who God is leading you to be. You're going to have to learn to say no to other people so that you can say yes to God. And let me tell you one thing I've learned about saying no. This is a valuable thing I've learned about saying no. You know when it's the hardest time to say no? The first time. It's always the most difficult to say the first time because you feel like, man, I'm letting people down. I'm failing people. This is going to damage a relationship. But once you say it the first time, it gets easier after that. Because you learn like, oh, I don't have to. I can say no and the world doesn't fall apart. I can say no and these things still happen and and everything still goes on. And the other thing you have to remember about saying no, and this is really important, is no doesn't mean no forever. I've turned down a lot of really good opportunities because now just wasn't the right time. Like two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, maybe a different story. But you know what, right now, where I'm at right now in my life with what's going on and where God's leading me and where God's having me focus, I just, I can't do that right now. I'm sorry. It's a great thing. It's a great opportunity, but no. You and I have to learn to say no to the good things so that we can say yes to the best things. We have to learn to say no to who others think we should be so that we can say yes to who God created us and who he's leading us to be. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you for everything that you have given to us. I'm so thankful that you came down to this earth and you lived and you died and you rose again to set us free. To set us free to pursue the life that you are leading us toward. And God, I know along our journey, there is so much pressure that we feel from the people around us. And most of that pressure, God, honestly, it comes from a good place. It really does. The people around us who know us and love us, they really do want what's best for us. But God, just because those things are good doesn't mean they're the best. Father, help us to be people who with wisdom and courage and grace are able to navigate these pressures and to say, you know what? 
I can't become who everyone else wants me to be and still become who God is leading me to be at the same time. I have to learn to say no to others so that I can say yes to God. And God, when we do that, help us to, to not feel guilty or to not feel bad and to know that at the end of the day, not everything's about us. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.